Hebrews chapter 4. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read Article 21 of our Confession of Faith. That's found on page 79 in the back of the blue hymnal. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. God's word, let us attend to its reading. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. Article 21 of our Confession of Faith. The satisfaction of Christ, our only high priest for us, says this. We believe... That Jesus Christ is ordained with an oath to be an everlasting high priest after the order of Melchizedek and that he has presented himself in our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, he was wounded for our transgressions He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and numbered with the transgressors, and condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore, he restored that which he took not away, and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, as well in his body as in his soul feeling the terrible punishment with our, which our sins had merited, insomuch that his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And has suffered all this for the remission of our sins. Wherefore, we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified, we count all things but loss and refuse for the excellency uh, uh, but loss and refuse for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice once offered by which he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified this is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God Jesus That is to say, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. I was sharing with our catechism class this morning. I was reading an article last night and then early this morning summarizing some findings by a sociologist. A very famous study 
and I hadn't, uh, I knew that this study existed, but hadn't really uh, delved too deeply into it. But it was uh, sociologist Christian Smith works out at, uh, at Notre Dame in South Bend, and he had extensively interviewed thousands of, of teenagers uh, regarding their faith, their religion. And most of them Protestant or Catholic, uh, some Jewish teenagers as well, and found that that in America, in the United States, really there's there's a underpinnings that connect all of these in most kids, most teenagers, the way that they understand their faith, whether they be Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and that is these these categories that he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And that is, basically everyone acknowledges that there's a God who has created all things and he, uh, he's the source of all that we know. Uh, he wants us to be happy and to feel good. He also wants us to act responsibly and fairly towards others. And uh, he is basically unattached from the world, uh, doesn't really delve into the matters of human history too much, but sort of shows up when you need something. Uh, for instance, there is this quote after quote of these teenagers who would say, God is sort of like, you know, if you need something, say you need $50, God shows up and perhaps he gives that to you. Or perhaps you're feeling down and when you're feeling down, then you can say a prayer and God sort of helps you feel better. And then he goes back to, to where he was before. And then finally, this common underpinning that good people go to heaven when they die. And, of course, this is antithetical to, to biblical faith, which has an in, intimate involvement of God in human history. And, you know, as the confession of faith goes through it and it brings to the fore the work of Christ and, and the, the extent to which God was willing to go in order to redeem people, it, it, it's one of those things that it, it's so unlike what we often get, whether it be in this, these categories of the therapeutic deism or... American civil religion, God is sort of this, this deistic God is far away. In this passage here in Hebrews chapter 4, we have not only the, the intimate involvement of God in human history and in the lives of his people, but we have the, the intimate involvement of God's people in their spiritual walk, to hold fast, to hold firmly. And one of the greatest helps for us in this is the priesthood of Christ, that we need to understand that Jesus, as our great high priest, gives to us help in our time of need. So we've been thinking a lot about the priesthood of Christ recently. So I thought it'd be appropriate if we drew out some of those more practical connections that we can make for how the priesthood of Jesus Christ uh, gives us the help that we need to hold fast, to hold firmly to our confession of the gospel and salvation in Christ alone. Let us hold fast to our confession, is what Hebrews says. And it begins in this passage with saying that Jesus is our great high priest. In other words, he is a priest of higher quality, of what he does on behalf of his people. This is, of course, in comparison to the work of the other priests in Israel. The author of Hebrews is, is bringing us to the glory of Christ in the new covenant. The priests... The Old Covenant, their work was temporary in that they would die, right? They, they, they could not remain forever because they were mortal. 
they needed to be replaced, and their work was also insufficient in that the work they carried out in the temple of sacrificing bulls and goats did not have the power to cleanse the consciences of the people. That was that human beings intuitively knew, the Israelites intuitively knew that the blood of a lesser creature, a a bull or a goat, could not pay for the sin of a higher creature, that is a human being, to an even higher uh, being, God, right? So we have sinful human beings, and intuitively, in, in that sacrificial system, the humans would know, and thus our consciences, their consciences would not be cleansed, because they would know that this blood is not sufficient to cleanse my sin once for all before a holy God. I know that another sacrifice is going to happen. I know that this ultimately cannot reach down into the depths of our sin. Thus, our catechism speaks with absolute perfect clarity on these issues. Man has sinned. Man must pay for sin. And the man who must pay for sin, he himself, of course, must be sinless. Because he who himself is sinful cannot pay for the sins of others. He would need himself to be atoned before God, in order to pay for the sins of others. But Jesus, of course, needed no atonement for himself. He presented himself, as our confession says, on our behalf before the Father, to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction, by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins. So, as we have been saying in these past weeks, uh, we must see and, and, and uphold and, and cling to this uh, foundational truth of the gospel, that the work of Christ is done for sinners and it's done for sin. The atonement is that Christ bears our sins to satisfy the justice of God and to propitiate the wrath of God, that the wrath of God is turned away uh, because of the work of Christ. He is, as Hebrews says, that as Jesus is, he is a trailblazer. Verse 14 says that he has gone through the heavens or passed through the heavens. It's a, the vision of, of breaking through a barrier to, to step on new ground that, that has not been traversed before. Um, Jackie Robinson, great American hero, and broke the color barrier in baseball. He was a, a trailblazer. He endured uh, horrible treatment, mistreatment, and today many African-American ballplayers point to him as their hero. Eventually it would have happened, right? Eventually there would have been somebody who, who would have broken through, would have been sort of that first one, right? But it wasn't just anyone, it was Jackie. It was Jackie Robinson. So every, I think it's May or June, every year all of the players wear number 42 for, uh, for one day. He broke a barrier. He walked on ground that others had not been to at that point. To use the language of the modern world, it's like uh, you know, breaking through the glass ceiling, like getting through uh, into a new sphere. But Jesus does this in a, in a more glorious way, doesn't he? He is the one who goes and breaks a barrier into heaven itself. And heaven was closed off to sinners. Jesus is the righteous one who presents his, his own life and his own body as the sacrifice for sin. Because of his righteousness, he breaks through into the heavens. And heaven is now opened up for sinners because we can stand in the risen and exalted Christ. 
Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are wonderful reminders of this. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will go up the mountain of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, right? Not me, not you. Clean hands and a pure heart. Only Jesus can ascend the hill of the Lord. And only we can go to the Lord as we are found in him. Isaiah 6 is the universal experience of all sinful human beings in the presence of God falling flat on your face and saying, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man, I am a woman, I am a person of unclean lips. Right? I am sinful before this holy God. But Jesus has gained access. He's broken through into heaven. There's this portal into the heavenlies that is now open because of the gospel and because of Jesus Christ. So because this is true, uh, the author of the Hebrews says, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. This is a forceful verb here, strong action verb, to hold fast, to hold firmly. It can mean to arrest someone, to hold on to someone as you're making an arrest. It can be used in situations where you're you're holding on for dear life. Matthew 28, after Jesus is resurrected, women are, are, are grasping uh, those women who are close to Jesus and his ministry, holding on to his feet after the resurrection as if to say, we, we're not going to let you out of our sight again. They're so overjoyed to see their, their Lord and their Savior raised that they're saying, we're, we're, we're not going to let go of you. Uh, there's this level, level of uh, fervor holding on to him. I remember being a 12-year-old Little League baseball player my dad bought me uh, kind of the, the new and, and fancy bat for the season. And I was so excited. I, I, I wouldn't let it out of my sight for the day. I brought it into my bedroom when I slept that night. Refused to let it out of my sight. I carried it everywhere for the next uh, few weeks. Right, Held fast to it. And there's this level of fervor that we are commanded to apply to our faith. That we are uh, commanded to apply to our profession, to that which we confess. In, uh, when we confess in the church, we stand up and confess our faith before men. We say, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to, to acknowledge that he is Lord, confess that he is Lord. I'm going to live uh, as though he is Lord. Cling to faith in Christ. Cling to faith in the gospel. Cling to the doctrine that is found in the word of God. This is the same word that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower for the, the, the one example of the person who perseveres to the end. Luke chapter 8. As for the seed that landed on good soil, these are the ones who, after hearing the word, cling to it with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with steadfast endurance. So there's this sense in which it entails a effort. It entails uh, our living in such a way that we would carry out this command of God. This is a mysterious aspect of the Christian life, saved by grace. And from a Reformed perspective, this is how we begin to understand, this is what fills out that doctrine of the covenant. We've been talking about that in recent weeks um, as we've been growing in our understanding of all of those things, right? God has willed all things from eternity. His will of salvation can never be changed. It can never be thwarted. Those who receive the blessings of salvation, who are justified, that cannot be taken away. That cannot be uh, reversed. And yet there's language in scripture that says, hold fast to the faith. Continue in the faith. Let us hold firm with our confidence until the end. 
And this is just one of the ways that our finite minds work in a linear fashion and it comes to meet the work of a sovereign God, right? In, in our human experience, we, we are growing in our faith. We are advancing. We're going to the end. The celestial city is before us. And God says, hold fast to the faith. Cling to Christ. And this is, we see the warnings in Scripture. We know the way that 1 John talks about it, the way that Hebrews talks about it. 1 John says, there were those who went out from us. But in their going out from us, we learned, we realized that they never had been of us. There are those who will, be, who will come to be known as former Christians who leave the church, who certainly at the time perhaps genuinely believed that God's unchangeable doctrine, decree of election included them. That the irreversible pronouncement of justification included them. And then for various reasons, maybe the trials, the worries of this life, maybe uh, the lusts of the flesh, pull them away. They leave the church and they leave the faith. Well, holding on to the faith does not make our salvation to be by works, but rather it's clinging to Christ and, and having faith in him to the end, right? To having every single day... Our, our life vision be, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Hebrews chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that faith we hold so dear is the proclamation that Christ is our high priest who bore our sins, who reconciled us to God. It means that we maintain awareness of how easy it is to forget the greatness of our salvation. To forget in the course of everyday life the the debt that we owe to God because of our sinfulness. The 10,000 talents that we owe to God which we could never repay. Chapter 2 of Hebrews then goes on to say, how shall we escape if we neglect uh, so great a salvation? As our confession says, he restored that which he took not away and suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, all for the remission of sins. So he is our great high priest and he helps us. He helps us. So in verses 15 through 16 in this passage, we are brought to the ways that Jesus, as our great high priest, helps us in our time of need to walk in faithfulness to this command, hold fast your confession. This is what uh, verse 14 is constructed to communicate. Since we have this great high priest, therefore, let us hold fast. So there's something about Jesus being our great high priest that is going to help us to hold fast to the faith, to cling to Christ. It says that he helps us in our time of need. This highlights what the confession says, that in him we find all manner of consolation. All manner of consolation we find in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 emphasizes the kind of priest that he is. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Notice the double negative there. We do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with us. In other words, emphatically, we do have a priest who sympathizes with us or perhaps suffers with us. Uh, It's a forceful term that jumps out at us, that he sympathizes with us. 
And this certainly revolves around what Hebrews says just after this, that uh, he sympathizes with us in that he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And we touched on this passage a couple of weeks ago as we've been uh, hitting again and again and again the priestly work of Christ. As we said a couple of weeks ago, this does not mean he is merely an example for us. This does not mean that when we are tempted to sin, that the way that it helps us is we say, oh yeah, well Jesus was tempted too. So now now I'm going to have victory over that temptation. It's not merely that he is an example We are to think about Jesus' priestly work as ongoing. To say that we have a great high priest is to say that that he is doing something for us even now. And it's more. It's more than just pleading our cause before the Father. And that's what we are going to see here uh, tonight. First of all, Jesus grieves with us and labors with us. He, He grieves with us in our groaning under the curse of our flesh. His entire life was one of expressing sympathy towards various infirmities and afflictions and weaknesses and trials of our cursed flesh. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He grieved alongside his friends and his brothers. He fed the hungry. He is filled with compassion for those who are in need in their time of help. So that's one way in which Jesus helps us. But more specifically, and in the ways in which he abounds, is all of these ways. He supplies us with need, or see, he supplies us with help in our lowest state, in our time of need. Isaiah chapter 40 says that uh, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. A shepherd deeply cares for his sheep, and he lives out that care for his sheep. When his sheep have need, whether it be they need to find water, they need to find pasture, they are in danger, the shepherd doesn't just lay back and say, wow, I really care about that sheep who is really thirsty. I really care about that sheep who is over there at the edge of the pasture, and those wolves are are kind of sniffing around. I I really care about that sheep. And then then he just stays there. No. The shepherd goes. He helps the sheep. The shepherd goes. He finds the sheep. The shepherd goes. He leads the sheep to the water and to find pastures. When Jesus sees weak, helpless, drooping souls, he helps them. For it is their help with which he is most concerned. We must see that just as the Lord provides us strength when we need it, we talked about that several weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, just as he gives us strength when we need it, so he provides grace exactly when we need it. Verse 16 says, he provides mercy and grace in time of need. That is, it's a seasonable time, a needful time time that we receive mercy and grace. This is again the great advantage of being loved by a God who is sovereign over all things, who knows the beginning from the end, who knows your need at every single moment. He knows exactly what you need. He knows when his sheep need food, when they need protection, when they need to find pasture. A plate of meat and potatoes when you are famished is a welcome thing. Uh, A pardon for your crimes on your way to the gallows, perhaps even better. Uh, 
Mercy and grace in the time of need uh, from the source of a sovereign God is indeed a wonderful thing. And then a couple of ideas then that what Jesus does to help us as this good shepherd who gives us mercy and grace in our time of need, in our time of temptation, in our time of affliction, right? Our struggle against sin, our struggle against the curse of the fall. Many of these I'm getting from, uh, from John Owen. Uh, so for the first thing that Jesus does as our great high priest, filled with compassion, filled with power to help with mercy and grace, is that he fashions us against the sins that would undo us. He fashions us against the sins that would undo us. In other words, he gives us a strong bent against the sin that would ruin us or ruin our lives. He did this with Joseph in making Joseph strongly opposed to the sin of adultery. Or that, that, that formative, that pinnacle moment in the life of Joseph. Potiphar's wife comes to him and offers herself to him. Joseph runs away. God had, by his grace given Joseph a strong bent against that sin, that would have been the undoing of Joseph. His life would have been vastly different from that point forward. In ways even beyond our understanding, God has fashioned us to keep us protected against Satan's strongest arrows. Because he loves us. Because he's our shepherd. God, in Jesus Christ, God also brings us back from the borders of sin. Example of this is when in 1 Samuel 24, when Saul uh, is, is in the cave and David and his men are in the cave and Saul is, is vulnerable, he can take him out, he can kill King Saul and his men. David's men are trying to get him to do it. They're saying, you can take Saul out now. You've been anointed king. It's your throne. David, of course, in, in his mind, as he, he cuts off the hem of Saul's robe to sort of prove to Saul that he's you know, acting as a righteous man. But even that, David is afflicted. And he's, I can't believe that I did that because the defining category for David is that if I'm the Lord's anointed, then he will, he will give me the throne when it seems good to him. I don't need to go and take it from Saul. That's one of the ways that David is a, a righteous king. God brought him back from the border of sin. David's foot had almost slipped, as he would say in the Psalms. This is one of the ways that God, or that Christ as our great high priest is a help for us. He brings us back from the borders of sin. As we get close and saved by the grace of God. Another thing that Christ can do as our great high priest, he can remove temptation itself. He can take it away. 2 Peter chapter 2. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There will be times when God simply removes uh, a, a, a trying temptation from us. God also, or Christ, I keep, <laughs> I keep mixing that up, Christ by his uh, high priestly work also is our, is our shepherd by giving us fresh supplies of grace giving us grace when we need it, so that his grace would be sufficient for us. Paul was afflicted. He's describing this affliction that he has in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's saying, I begged the Lord to take it away. Many people have tried to figure out what it is that Paul's saying. We don't know. We don't know what Paul means. This affliction, this thorn in the flesh, as he describes it. Saying, I begged the Lord to take it away. But then he has this moment where he realizes, uh, they says, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
God will give us the grace to go through life even in the midst of our weaknesses that we have so that he might be glorified in and through us. Sometimes Christ, uh, through his power and in his priestly work, will give us wisdom to go through temptations or to go through trials and make spiritual improvement of it. That it grows us spiritually when we go through trials, when we go through challenges, when we go through hard times. And it takes the wisdom of God to be able to look at the things through which we go and we say, I I have gained knowledge and understanding and I love my God, I love my Savior more because of what I have gone through. Many people in our congregation, things in their life that no one would ask for, that no one would request, that no one would desire. Are you asking the Lord to give you wisdom that you might make spiritual improvement in your own life because of what he is asking you to go through? What if the Lord sees fit to take away some worldly possession from you so that he might uh, work the depths of your soul to take away an aspect of idolatry that you have? an aspect of comfort of the things of this world with which you are struggling. God is saying, I will be exalted in your life. I will be the one whom you worship and adore. I will be the one uh, to whom you will go. I will be your refuge and your strength. Other things too, as, as we are reminded time and time and time again, uh, our hearts were heavy this week as our former pastor and his wife. It, it, these things, each and every day you wake up and you're saying, Reverend Madney was saying to me, I, I, I've woken up every day this week and I still don't believe that it's true. Our hearts are heavy. We ask the wisdom for God to say, let, let you teach us, Lord, teach us how we make you our refuge and our strength. How you can be our rock and our redeemer. Grow us in the understanding of all of these things. Give us wisdom to make spiritual improvements through all of these trials. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do at all. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Many times we fail, don't we? In temptation, uh, in affliction, we may figure out ways to, to, to sin, even if we are met with affliction. We're not going through it in a way that honors God. But of course, as our great high priest, the wonderful truth, the perhaps most glorious truth of all of this is that when we do fall into sin, when we do sin, he intercedes for us and he works forgiveness for us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, John says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All of these things, you know, perhaps we could do uh, to some extent and in imperfect ways. Sometimes God will give us fresh supplies of grace so that his power will be made perfect in us. Sometimes he will give us wisdom. Sometimes he will remove the temptation. Sometimes he will give us a bent against the sin so that we would not undo our entire life in Christ. But sometimes we will fall into various sins and temptations. 
And when that happens, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has an ongoing priestly ministry before the Father, for sin and for sinners. And all of those things, and there are many, many more, many, many more aspects in which Christ is our great high priest. But because of that, Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because we are making such headway against our sin? Because we are having so much victory over temptation? No. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest. It is only in Christ that we have acceptance before God. Nothing else is added so that we might be accepted before God. It is in Christ alone. Thus, Christ is to occupy the throne of our hearts. He is to be our only boast. He is to be our only confidence. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out his resume. He says, all of these things I had. He says, I count it all as nothing. I count it all as garbage, refuse, that I might know Christ. And what he's doing there is he's saying, it's it's justification that I'm clinging to. I'm clinging to the fact that I am accepted before God in Christ alone. Found in no one else. Found in nothing else. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Calvin says this, the one who has communion with Christ watches diligently over his own heart. Actually, sorry, this is John Owen, not John Calvin, John Owen. The one who has communion with Christ watches diligently over his own heart, that nothing creep into its affections to give it any peace or establishment before God, but Christ only. Whenever that question is to be answered, with what shall I come before the Lord? He does not answer with, this or that I will do, or here and there I will watch and amend my ways. But instantly he cries, in the Lord Jesus, I have righteousness. All my desire is to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. He is our great high priest. Because of that, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We can be sure that as we live out our lives before God, in the covenant of grace, through our mediator, who lives for us before God, that he will give mercy and grace in the time of need. It may be in some other way that we haven't covered tonight. I certainly didn't cover every single one. He gives mercy and he gives grace in our time of need. If we fall into sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Thus, it is in Christ alone that we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and we live out that vital union that we have with Christ lived before the face of God, in Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he is sovereign, he knows what we need, and he is glad and pleased to give it, for he is our great high priest, and he is the good shepherd. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, and we ask that through them you would exalt yourself in our lives. Give us mercy and grace in our need, according to our need, that we might live for you and for your glory this week. Forgive us of our many sins. Empower us by your spirit to walk in faith always, to hold fast to our confession. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we'll sing verses 